Several weeks ago, I was thrown into what might be called a spiritual crisis. The text I was preaching on that week only had two points. I had no idea what I was going to do that day. Thankfully, order has been restored this week. There are three points in this passage. I was... Two spiritual crises and COVID and my Jayhawks losing in the NCAA tournament before the Sweet 16. Say it not so, Lord. He was gracious this week. Three points I want to share with you from Job chapter 16, verses 16 through 21. If you have your Bibles, you're really my favorite people. If you have your phone, you can bring it up too. You're sort of like second tier a little bit. I mean. Yeah, well. (laughs) Three points. The sanity of tears. The normalization of passion. And the longing for a mediator. This is what Job teaches us, I think, in Job chapter 16. There are many reasons why Job can feel odd, can feel like a very strange journey to modern Christians. Job is blameless, We are full of sin. Job suffered immensely and excessively. We have air conditioned and ice cubes. And so there might be another reason why Job lands odd upon the modern American Christian. We don't really know what to do with our tears. Listen to what Job says in Job chapter 16. Starting at verse 16. Job says, My face is red with weeping, and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. O earth, cover not my blood. Let my let my cry find and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. And he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God. That he would argue the case of a man with God. As the son of man does with his neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Do you get what Job is saying here in our passage? It's especially at these points of the dialogues that go on and on and on. In the book of Job. Here is what Job's saying in Job chapter 16. My face is red with weeping. My eyelids are filled with deep darkness. His cry finds no resting place. He says, my eye pours out tears to God. I counted, that's four times. I haven't taken math, you know, since Randy was in diapers, but... um, That's four times Job is alluding to to tears and his face is showing, his, his face is red because he's been overcome with sadness and sorrow in his life. And so I ask you, do you remember what age you were when crying became embarrassing to you? Was it age seven? Was it age eight? But at some point in our lives, right, we all cried. We cried for milk. 
We cried for food. We cried to be changed. We cried for things that weren't the way they're supposed to be. Babies cried with a, with a deep longing. God, you know, give me more love. Give me more attention. The world is not right. My world is not quite right. But you say, well, you can't go on crying all day long and all life long, can you? This is how we socialize as human beings in our world. And so Job is weird. Job is odd. Because he wears out his friends with crying and weeping. His face is red with weeping. His eyelids show the effects of his sadness and his trials. And here's the point. His friends think he has gone mad. But has he? What if weeping is the only response to the brokenness of our world? And not to cry and not to weep is the truly insane response. Randy, in a couple months, middle of May, our own youth pastor here is having a baby. Well, really, his wife is having a baby. I mean, let's get that. Randy's just being dragged along, if we're honest, right? And so there has been with Randy a sense of joy and anticipation and, and celebration, and rightly so. But there have been times, and I've asked his permission to share this, there has been times where we have talked and he's said things like this, Jason, this is the world This is the world that I get to bring a child into? When I see the brokenness and the hurt in teenage lives, week after week, day after day, this is a world that my new daughter will get to inherit? And so there's joy and anticipation mixed with sadness and not saying he's coming in crying in my office every day, but there is a sense of, this is hard. This is going to be hard. One of my best friends, my, one of my best men in my wedding, he shared with my home church in Wichita, Kansas, when he was 20 or 21 years of age, he shared with his church family his call to enter the ministry, his call to serve God in full-time ministry. And, and the church celebrated and and encouraged him and and prayed for him as rightly they should. But that very same night, one of our mutual friends, Paul, showed up at Chris's house and wept and cried for his friend. He prayed for him. Why did he do that? Because he knew that there would be in Chris's life a, a burden, that he would have to shoulder some burdens in the ministry. And so Chris was rightly celebrated and rightly people rejoiced. But there was also Paul, our friend who wept the day he shared about his own call to ministry. And so what I'm saying is something like this. Sometimes tears are the only appropriate response to living in a fallen world. Tears are sometimes the only God honoring response to living in a dark and twisted and fallen and sinful world. Several months ago, I'm not sure who it was, it could have been a number of people, several months ago someone lost a spouse and there they were in my office in my study and they were crying. 
And if I had listened to some of my professors, and sometimes you think, well, you should have listened to some of your professors better, but if I would have listened to my counseling professor, you know, he said, you know, like, you know, you have to have some sort of professional distance. You know, your tears don't do their tears any good. Maybe that's true, but I found myself that day with tears welling up in my own eyes. God, it doesn't seem right. Someone would live 40, 50 years, and that's a grace, and that's a gift, and then somehow they're gone, and this person has to continue to, to live life. It doesn't seem fair. So what were my tears the only possible response? No, but there were one response to living in our fallen and sinful world. Friends, Job teaches us about the sanity of tears. Job cries for God's justice in the face of extreme and gross injustice. Job cries for God's presence when he experiences the hiddenness of God. Job cries for God's voice when he experiences the very silence and the deafening silence of God. And the question I ask you this morning is this, has Job gone mad? Or do our lack of tears, do our lack of tears implicate our own callousness to the injustices of our world and all the ways that we, that you and I together, normalize our own spiritual apathy to the things of God? And so I say this to you this morning, oh, that we would cry for the presence of God. Don't you want to be a part of a church that, that cries for God's presence? Oh, that we would cry to hear God's voice in the same way that Job did. As it is, I don't know about you, it's often like this for me. Well, that seems hard. Just give me another show, Netflix. Give me another ball game. Give me another restaurant. Is crying for God's presence insane? Or is not crying for God's presence the real measure of our insanity? Remember, it was Jesus who early on the Sermon on the Mount, very in the, in the Beatitudes, what did he say? He said, blessed are those who what? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I suggested as we studied that verse that throughout the, the church uh, calendar, throughout the church's history, The church has often interpreted those words to refer primarily to our sin, for our need to mourn, to cry and weep for our sin before God. And so I ask you a question this morning, just like I asked myself the question this week, when was the last time that I wept and cried because of my sin before a perfect and holy God? When did I do that last? Is my spiritual growth to be measured only by the temperature of my joy, which is right and fitting, right? That we should have joy in the Christian life. We have been saved. We have been given this beautiful creation to enjoy. But is it also not the case that my spirituality should also be measured by the depth of my sorrow over sin? Do you think that God is only pleased with my joy and not also pleased by us mourning over our sin? About six months ago, 
One of the pastors in the Florida Presbytery, he had a moral failure. And you say, oh, not again. This wasn't a esteemed, recognized celebrity pastor that you hear so much about. He was just like me and like the rest of us on staff here, just ordinary, we'll live and die in obscurity. But he had a moral failure, had to be removed from office. And one of the pastors that was counseling him as this pastor that had hurt his congregation, hurt his family, sort of justifying himself, sort of excusing his own behavior, one pastor in this meeting said to him very lovingly, but very strongly, brother, brother, it feels like sin sits too lightly upon your life. That sin is sitting too lightly upon your heart. He told him that with all the love in the world. So I wonder how many people, how many children even of God will hear this at the day of their homecoming and at the day of judgment. Child of God, welcome. But sin sat too lightly upon your heart. Jesus teaches us that the sanity of tears is actually a very fruitful pathway to Christian growth. So I ask you again, when was the last time you mourned and cried and wept over your sin? How many believers will sit in many, many churches all over the globe today on Palm Sunday who will never experience the comfort of of God. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. How many believers will never experience the comfort of God because they will have never learned to lean in to mourning and weeping for their sin? Do you want to experience the comfort of God? Do you want to experience God saying to you, my grace is sufficient for you, and you sing amazing grace like you've known it, like nothing else, the sanity of tears. Second, The normalization of passion. Job, I think, teaches us a lot of things as we read his great book. But Job also teaches us about passion. Look at the stanza right before Job's face becomes red with weeping, starting at verse 12 of chapter 16. He says this, and I don't know how else to read this, but with a lot of passion. Verse 12, Job says, I was at ease. And he, God, and God broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and I have laid my strength in the dust. And you say, what is Job saying here? Job is saying something like this, and he says it few different times, actually many different times through the book of Job. He's saying something like this, God is the hunter and I am the target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys. Look at all of what is going on in my life. 
God is running me through like a warrior with his very sword drawn against me. You talk to God like that. You think that Job knew a God that didn't have to be coddled, that wasn't this small and weak God that could withstand all the the passion pouring forth from Job's life in the midst of trials? And so Job, again, he lands very odd to us as modern Christians. Job is strange in the way that he talks to God and about God. One theologian has said that God had mercy on Job at the end of the book of Job because God wanted to show how he could forgive one whose faith was so weak like Job's. Now that's not the book of Job that I read. Here Job is saying, God, you are hunting me down. God, you are treating me like your enemy. Job is saying these things with passion. So I ask you, could it be that Job is normalizing passion just like he is telling us that tears are a sign of sanity in the life of faith? Is Job teaching us that the life of faith is a life of passion? I remember when I was in college, sitting out on the second floor of a deck one night. It was like a Friday or Saturday night. I was sitting there with my friend Kirk. I remember we didn't have a great apartment, but it had a second floor balcony. I remember how much I paid for that. $198. (laughs) Those were the days. Those were the days. And Kirk and I, we were talking about faith and basketball. These two things often go together. You You didn't realize this? Some of the best times I've had in prayer was just shooting baskets by myself on the driveway, no one there but me and God, and I imagined lots of people in the stands. But that's another story, that's another story. And we agreed about one thing that night, me and Kirk, when we were on that second floor balcony. We were asking things like this, why can we get so passionate about a game? Why can we be so passionate about a sports Team. And if truth be told, so apathetic to the things of God. And I left that conversation that night, I still remember it to this day, convinced, and we agreed on something, and it wasn't him agreeing to root for my teams. I left that night saying, my level of passion for Christ should rise above my passion for my favorite sports team. And so there was only two ways for me to go. Either I had to decrease my passion for sports, which, as you know, really wasn't an option because of the way I was raised. Thank you, Mom and Dad, if you're watching. Or I had to increase my capacity for passion for the things of God. Don't both men and women, don't we often tend to find our passions outside the things of God? Men, we find it in in sports and cars and boats and in career. Is this where your, your ultimate passion should lie? Women often find their ultimate passion in hobbies and kids and home and in careers. Is this where your ultimate passion should lie? 
And so just as I think many of us will hear from God, why did you never mourn your sin? Why did sin sit so lightly upon your heart, oh my child? Many of us, if God might speak to us today, I wonder if he'd say, my child, I gave you creation, this beautiful creation. I gave you redemption, the the gift of my son. Yet your passion was found in your kitchen and bathroom remodel jobs. How is that possible? Your passion was found in helping your child become this 37th best fencer in Brevard County. Your kid isn't even good at fencing. Now, now God wouldn't say that. I would, I would say that, right? I love what Mike Mason says in his book. He says, self-control is a vital quality in Christians. Self-control is a vital quality in Christians. It's one of the nine fruits of the Spirit, after all. It's a vital quality in Christians. But he says, but not to the point where it completely eviscerates our passions. Is not God himself an intensely passionate being? He loves passionately. He hates passionately. There is absolutely nothing about which he is dispassionate. God is a passionate God. And so the reason that Job seems hard, I think, for us to read is the temperature of Job's faith is dialed all the way up at the top line of the thermometer. And so could it be that God appreciates and even, in a sense, admires Job's passionate faith. In a sense, you can see Job meeting God in his passion because God himself is also passionate. Remember what King David did? He's, the Ark of the Covenant is coming back into Israel, back into Jerusalem. And what does King David do? He dances. He leads the people of God by dancing. And Michal, the the daughter of Saul, what does she do? She's looking from a window and she says this in disgust. How distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. What is King David, this beacon, this of respectability, what does he say to, how does he reply? Yes. And I am willing to look even more foolish than this. In other words, you haven't seen nothing yet. Even to be humiliated in my own eyes. In a sense, David says, may my passion for God always outrun my respectability before men. May my passion for God always outrun my respectability before men. And so I ask you today, where is your passion? If God maybe could send an invisible friend to always be with you this last month of your life, you're thinking, that sounds like somebody I know from the Trinity. What would they say is your greatest passion? Is it for the things of God? Has other things in creation stepped between you and your God? Sanity of tears, the normalization of passion. And third, finally, thankfully, longing for a mediator. Let me just say that last week I was uh, preaching at Mount Moriah Missionary Baptist Church. And I got like 
5,000 more amens last week than I did. Job is longing for a mediator, even in the Old Testament, even in the Old Covenant. He has a faint longing for a heavenly figure to come between him and his God. So this longing for Job starts in Job chapter 9. We read verse 32 through 34. Job says, For he, God, is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. God, uh, Job has maintained this great picture of God in his might and in his majesty. I'm not, uh, he's not a man as I am, that, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. It's a difficult passage to translate. The NIV puts it a bit differently on the mouth of Job. Job says there, if only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. So Job is either bemoaning that there seems to be no arbiter, no mediator, or engaging in a longing, a hopeful wishing that there was an arbiter, there was a mediator. But somehow, somehow, Job surmises that there is a heavenly court, and there just might be the faint possibility, however remote it might be, that there is an advocate up there whose identity is not yet known. Job is, Job, Job is longing for a mediator who can settle his trial with God, an arbiter, a negotiator that can bring both sides of the parties together in reconciliation. Christ is walking softly and faintly through the book of Job. Doesn't this sound to you like the Apostle Paul? 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. Paul says, for there is one God, Well, I guess there's nobody else in the heavenly court. No, there is. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ. Job is longing for this mediator. Could there be a mediator sent by God to become between a majestic and a holy God and between a sinful and unrighteous people? Might there be that kind of provision of God? So that when I come to God in my sinfulness, I don't have to come to God alone. I don't have to come with all my sin strapped on my back, asking only, oh, just can you look at my religious performance? Can you see all the ways that I've done good this week? That you don't have to say that. That you have Christ Jesus, the righteous one, as your mediator between God and yourself. And consider it was Job whom The Bible and God himself calls a blameless and upright man, one who feared God and shunned evil. Now, when I preached last week at Mount Moriah, they gave a small introduction. Let me assure you that part of that introduction was not, Jason is a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. I didn't get that introduction. This is the introduction Job gets. And even he... Even Job longs for this mediator to come between him and God. So God supplied exactly 
what Jesus, what Job longed for. You and I, we get to experience the reality. Job longed for, he wished it might be true. He hoped that one day God would provide a mediator. In chapter 16, Job, what does he say? My witness is in heaven. All these friends you've given me, Job, they don't help one bit. My witness has to be in heaven. Maybe there's a mediator from there that can lay its hand on God and me and we can come to trial together that I can be declared righteous before God. Wouldn't that be nice? And so what Job longed for, what Job hinted at for so long during the book of Job, we get to experience the reality. Let me sit here and amen. amen. You, did, you did okay. <laughs> you did all right. Charles Spurgeon, often called the Prince of Preachers, a Baptist Reformed preacher of the 19th century in England, how did he read the Old Testament? How did he preach the Old Testament? He said this. He said, I have never yet found a text that had not got a road to Christ in it. Then he says, and if I ever do find one that has not a road to Christ in it, I will make one. I will go over hedge and ditch, but I would get at my master. For the sermon cannot do any good unless there is a Savior of Christ in it. He was famous for saying, if you go in the right direction in England, all roads will lead to London. In the very same way, he said, if you read both the Old and the New Testament correctly, all roads will eventually lead you to Christ. Remember the road to Emmaus? Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is talking to two disciples. They don't recognize who He is. He's talking with them. He's, he's walking with them. And then there's this amazing verse. Jesus says to these two, was it not necessary? Or In other words, you didn't understand by reading the Old Testament that Holy Week had to come? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And then Luke has a great line. And he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. In other words, from the, from the Torah to all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, just like Spurgeon, or should we say Spurgeon was just like Jesus, all the roads, all the texts, all the passages, if you read them correctly, if you read them rightly, will all lead to Jesus. Is this good news to you? You have a mediator. You don't have to appear before the judgment seat of God alone. You never have to walk alone. You never have to wonder, is my religious performance good enough? Am I being a good enough person? Lay that all down. You have a mediator. Appears before you and God, and He is for you. He lived the life you could never live. He died the death that you deserve. This is what we're going to celebrate this week during Holy Week. Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. Let's pray.